Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we are talking with Anthony Jung, CEO and founder of VinoVest, and he's going to go over how his company and in general how wine can be used as an investment vehicle. Anthony, welcome to the show. Robert and Peter, thanks for having me on. I was wondering if you give us a brief overview of your background and why you decided to start VinoVest. Sure. So in terms of my background, I grew up really all across the world. I spent most of my childhood years in Beijing and Hong Kong. That's when I really started to realize how important wine is from a cultural and societal standpoint, but really kind of just forgot about when I was growing up and went, went to college at USC. And that's when I first embarked on my entrepreneurial journey. I started my first company, Envoy Now, which was a food delivery app for college campuses. And I was lucky enough to receive my first investment offer from Mark Cuban after pitching him. And then a few weeks later, received an offer from Peter Thiel's foundation to drop out of college to pursue my business full time. So I took that offer. It was an incredible journey being able to learn and build and scale a venture-backed business and sold that business a few years ago. And after that first acquisition was when I first started thinking about investments and then alternative investments. You know, I was 20-something years old at the time. Didn't want to just throw my money into boring stocks and bonds for the rest of my life. So I remember Googling an article saying, you know, what are the super rich people investing in these days? And, you know, wine was at the top of that list. Uh, others like art and jewelry and classic cars, those other ones just didn't really pique my interest the same way wine did, just because I didn't really have a connection to them. And my thought was that even if I was a bad wine investor, at the end of the day, I still got awesome wine to drink. So, <laughs> you know, it's really not the, the riskiest investment in my mind. So is that when you got into wine? Like, uh, were you already into wine before starting a company? Or is it after you kind of sold your company, you're like, you started uh, picking up an appreciation for fine wine? I've always loved wine, but I would not say it's fine wine. You know, when you're in college, you're pretty much drinking whatever's in front of you. So I'd say I'm still on that journey, slowly, slowly expanding my palate into learning about different regions and producers from all around the world. But yeah, with, uh, with diving into that, I realized how difficult it was for a newcomer, especially one without any existing wine industry connections, to break into fine wine. Not only was it hard to research and have knowledge on which were the ones to invest in, but access was a huge issue. Even if I could afford some of these bottles, sometimes they wouldn't even sell it to me and I had to go on to the secondary market or to auctions. And I'm sure a lot of your readers may be familiar with how extensive those fees can be when you go to auction houses. And then you have to think about the logistics around shipping, storage, insurance, and it seemed to me that an asset class as old as fine wine, you know, people have been collecting this for hundreds, arguably even thousands of years, there should be some better infrastructure around it. We're living the 21st century and I wanted to create that solution for the modern investor. And that's why VinoVest was formed. So why do you think people should invest in wine as an individual? I think if you're looking at it from a purely objective standpoint, say you don't drink wine, don't have an interest in alcohol at all, and you're just looking at it from a purely numbers basis, it has outperformed the S&P 500 for the past 20 years. It has about a third of the volatility of the stock market in that time frame 
and it shows a very low correlation level to the market, meaning that it's a strong hedge against things like inflation as well as potential recessions. So on paper, it's really a no-brainer. People should be diversifying, especially when they get to a certain level of exposure into the stock market. And depending on what else they're invested in, it's always good to have something that is uncorrelated to major global equities, as well as something that may be less volatility than something else that may be a lot riskier, like say you're, you know, you're investing in commodities or crypto, for example. Yeah, there has been a huge rise in alternative investment assets. I'm curious on how does wine fare compared to those? I think wine occupies a really unique space because it is tangible. It's something that not only appreciates over time or changes over time, but oftentimes it gets better, right? People prefer the taste of aged Bordeaux or Burgundies for a reason. Um, and they have for hundreds of years. So that those taste preferences, unless people suddenly decide that they want to drink wine right out of the gates, which I don't think is happening anytime soon, those things are really strong fundamentals. And then I think finally, what's really unique is that from a supply and demand standpoint, wine actually has decreasing supply, right? No matter how great the 2005 Bordeaux or Burgundy vintages were, you can't go back in time and make any more, right? So as time goes on, these bottles are going to appreciate because there's just less and less of them in the world. Every single bottle of wine that a wine collector is enjoying is making the remaining supply that much more valuable and scarce. Right. I was wondering if you go over the actual process of wine investment. What's like at a high level? What's the basic process of how someone invests in wine with VinoVest? So I think number one is choosing how much you want to invest, how long you want to invest that for, and then also what your risk appetite is. So I'll break it down into those three points. So how much is just your budget, right? There are some wines that are a couple hundred dollars, some wines that are thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars. So that really starts to help us define what wines are available for your, for your investment. Number two is how long you want to invest it for, right? So if you want to hold on to wine for five years versus 20 years, we're going to be buying different wines for you, right? Because different wines have different sort of peak maturity periods compare an investable white burgundy versus a Barolo, right? They've got very different drinking time windows. And the number three is that risk appetite. So if you make a parallel into the stock market, there are your equivalent of super stable blue chip, large cap stocks like Apple's, Amazon's, your your GMs and Fords of the world, those are equivalent to maybe your first growth Bordeaux or maybe your Grand Cru Burgundies that are super established. They've got a price track record of 50, 100 vintages dating back. So you can really be able to see comps when you're looking at newer vintages. And from a volatility standpoint, it's really not that dynamic. They're just going to slowly inch up in price unless something major happens. If you're looking on the other side of the spectrum, there are your emerging markets or newer winemakers or wineries that may have recently changed ownership that drastically changes the investment outlook. So those wines would be a little bit more risky just because there's more speculation at play. And depending on what type of investor you are, we want to make sure that you have the right sort of allocation between those blue chip wines, those maybe more riskier wines, and then the stuff that's in between. And so when people are investing with Vinovest, are they investing in whole bottles, cases, derivatives, or fractions of bottles? They're investing very straightforwardly. It's going to be just the bottles and the cases. 
So we hold on to them, we insure them, we inspect them, we make sure that they are aging properly and in excellent condition. And then when you want to sell, we can help you sell. If you want to drink it, we can help you ship it. Got it. So so VinoVest itself has a has a warehouse and a facility where they're storing and insured and and so that's where all the all that's happening. That's right, Robert. As an investor, I don't have to have anything on my property or worry about correct storage. Exactly, because I I've been there before, and my house was turning into like an Amazon fulfillment center, and it is not fun, and it is not cheap either. Yeah, and and you never you can never have enough wine storage if you're into wine. Is the is the is yes, the, is the, yes. Is the especially now so, it's it's so hot in LA. I'm I'm struggling right now with some of my bottles. So, what are the fees associated with investing in wine? I think when you're looking at costs of investment in wine, number one is the access and the procurement. Number two is going to be the shipping, the storage. And the number three, which I think is super important, is going to be the insurance because things happen, right? You, I think, remember in with Hurricane Katrina, there was a storage facility in New York that didn't have proper insurance and wiped out over $50 million worth of people's wine. You don't want that happening ever again. So with VinoVest, we lump all of those fees into one asset management fee of 2.85%. And that fee scales down the more that you invest with us. Got it. And that's per year? Per year. Correct. And in terms of getting to the point where in terms of access, because that's a huge part of it, like a lot of people can't get access to some of the top lines. Is that something that it's inclusive in that fee or is there premium investors that the larger investor is going to get more access to something that's like highly allocated, like a cult Cabernet or really high end exclusive Burgundy or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's nothing additional that we charge for access to certain wines, but really the the sort of higher end wines are really determined by price point, right? If you only want to invest $10,000, we wouldn't really offer you a $10,000 bottle of Burgundy because we don't want all of your portfolio into just one thing. So when you are at a higher price point, you do have more options because you can diversify more without having too much concentration into one sector or one region or one vintage or one producer in your portfolio. Got it. And so on average, what would you say the either for a person or maybe everything that was over for VinoVest, what's the average price point for a bottle that is in the VinoVest portfolio? Average price point for a bottle, I would say it's in the low hundreds, right? There's a lot of great values from from Super Tuscans to Cold Napa Cabs to even First Growth Bordeaux that are in that sort of, I'd say, 200 to $600 a bottle range. Got it. And so in terms of, I'm assuming as like a, like sort of like a mutual fund is you kind of evaluate your current, you know, holdings in terms of the wine, like in terms of doing that evaluation, if you were to say like how much money is invested in wine that's under Vino Vesa's control at the moment, like how would you evaluate that? Yeah. So right now we're managing upwards of $50 million worth of wine. And you mentioned on your website that Vino Vesa is able to buy wine for below retail and offer that to your clients. How do you do that and how much below retail are the wines on average? We do that because we buy direct or as direct as we can. So, you know, in Bordeaux, it means direct from the negociants. In places where we have direct buying access, we buy direct from the winery. So without a lot of the brokers or additional shipping or logistics costs being added on before it reaches the consumer in a normal standpoint, we're able to pass on a lot of those savings to our consumers. And that just means you got a better entry price better potential for gains on on investment. And in terms of the how do we do that, it's really based on our connections that we've developed in the industry. We are really lucky to have folks who have had an immense type of 
experience from being master psalms to being wine directors at you know, three Michelin starred restaurants and just having these sort of connections and opening those doors for us has been really helpful in helping us reach the right folks. And so if I'm an investor, but I also love wine because, as you said, uh, it's a fun thing to invest in because at the end you can drink it potentially. Do, do my wine preferences play into what's, what we invest in or how does that work? So you have that option, but I usually encourage investors to take their wine investment preferences and keep them very separate from their taste preferences. Because for me, say, I'm, I'm really big into Northern Rhone. I love white burgundy. Those might not be the best investment choices for me. And I don't want to cloud the investment performance with my taste preferences. So I've got my seller here at home, and then I've got my vino best seller far, far away out of temptation. <laughs> yeah, I think you mentioned that most of the wines are stored in Europe. But if you want to, you can take physical delivery. How much would that cost if someone lived in the U.S. and wanted to get their wine from London or wherever it's stored? It's not cheap, especially during these COVID days where we've got trillions of dollars of shipping containers outside the U.S. But what we do to make it a little bit more affordable is we try to batch deliveries. So say if you know you and Robert and me, we all want wine and we all live in the, near the same place. If you're waiting, willing to wait a few weeks so that we can all coordinate it, Vino Best can then be able to make sure that those savings are passed on as well. And it's a lot more economical to ship. So that can drop it from being you know, hundreds of dollars with shipping insurance down to something that's a little bit more palatable in you know, under a hundred bucks, depending on how much wine you want to ship, as well as how many people you're sharing it with. So does that mean if they're stored offshore that Vinovest is going to handle the importing or, or work with a partner to bring it in for them? Correct. So we'll work with the correct parties who have the right licenses, depending on the state or the country that we ship to. Got it. So I am curious in terms of how you evaluate the value of wine and, 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 and also talk a little bit about its liquidity, because some of these rare wines, they, there maybe isn't a lot of stock. And so that, you know, you're kind of judging on historical prices. And so say I invested a thousand dollars in wine and I'm allocated a bottle of wine that I want to sell. Like, how do I a know what it's worth and, and B enable myself to sell it? Do I have to then sell it to someone else who's investing in VinoVest or is it, or do we go out, or does it go outside of the network? Good question. So to answer the first part, I think with pricing, we really try to have the most comprehensive coverage on all the activity that's going on in the wine secondary market. This means we're plugging into all of the major wine exchanges. We're working with third parties that are transacting offline and gathering as much real-time sale data as we can. So that really reflects your current value. So if someone buys a same case of the wine that you have, and that transaction is recorded, we want to make sure that's reflected on your most up-to-date fair market value. And then when it comes to selling, we work, I think a main reason why we don't do the whole like uh, mutual fund or fractionalization thing is that we can then, if not, sell to a retailer or sell to a restaurant. It gives us a lot more optionality in addition to just the thousands of investors that are on our platform that might want to buy your wine. But when it comes to the selling, that's what the VinoVest strategy and algorithm is for. We're the ones that make those selling recommendations for you so you don't need to guess. When you mention the different exchanges, what are the major exchanges that you plug into? I, I know of LiveX, but I'm not sure how many others there are and how much liquidity is actually transacted on them. Yeah, so LiveX is definitely one of our major partners. There's quite a few that are based in Europe and Asia and North America. 
So just to list off a few, like wine owners, wine boards, KBEX, Barry Brothers has an exchange, Ordo Index has an exchange. There's quite a few others that we work with. And even despite all of them transacting, you know, anywhere between 50 million and 300 million a year, it still encompasses such a small fraction of the overall secondary market trading activity. Most of the deals that are being done are still offline. And that's what we also try to capture with our trading partners that are offline, or maybe they don't work on those exchanges. So we see this shift of more and more merchants and more and more wineries, especially given COVID last year, they're much more willing to be able to work with technology forward partners like us because they realize that it helps them reach a larger audience. Are you also looking at auction strike prices, especially if you're dealing with vintage wines, not just current releases? So we do look at auction strike prices, and then we want to be able to actually less the the auction fees as well, because that's a huge difference in a lot of times. So one of the challenge of investing in alternative assets is they're not always as liquid as as regular assets might be in terms of like stocks or or bonds and things like that. So what level of buy and selling of certain wines, say, you know, I'm assuming that we're dealing a lot with Bordeaux here, like class growth Bordeaux. At what point does selling these start to influence the overall price or buying them and, and self-inflate the price? That's a great question. So if we're talking about an established market like Bordeaux, you know, every single year on they're releasing over a billion dollars plus worth of wine into the market. So it's a pretty deep market. And when you're considering the other vintages that are still out there and available, usually you can buy pretty good volumes of, I'd say, the last 10 years, right? Really, when you're past 10, 15 years is when that scarcity really starts to come into play. Maybe you're only seeing them at auction, and then that liquidity becomes a big consideration because the sales are so far in between. But when you're when you're playing in that, I'd say, like 5 to 15-year mark, there's pretty good liquidity for the markets that we're looking at, for the assets that we're looking at, and you're able to be able to find ready buyers because that's when the wines are hitting their prime and a lot of either retailers or restaurants are looking to stock up on them for the years to come. Would that be different for Burgundy or you know small Napa Cabernets that are much smaller in production? I agree. With Burgundy, it's definitely going to be much smaller quantities, much higher prices, but the spreads are still going to be equivalent to what you see from a Bordeaux standpoint, especially I think with how quickly Burgundy's popularity has been growing, particularly in Asia. One of our guests, William Kelly, said, uh, you only need three or four people to like, corner the market in certain Burgundies, and it just like pops the price a tremendous amount. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some of them are the quantities are just so minuscule, right? Or even even in some of the Napa Cab producers that are like, wow, there's only, you know, 100 cases, 200 cases. And maybe those allocations are going to less than 10 people, right? So those are those ones are tricky. Those ones, as you mentioned, you only need a couple buyers to be able to set the price for a market. And then it becomes a little bit more like art where it's very, very unique. Only one person needs to say yes to that price to be able to make that gain. And it's a little bit of a different play than uh, I'd say you're more, you know, you're more commercially produced uh, first growth Bordeaux. So I am curious in terms of time horizon. So the average consumer or investor in VinoVest, when, when they become, what, what kind of time horizon is a minimum that they should be thinking about in order to, for, to really see their investment pan out? I would say minimum five years. I treat it like real estate where it is something that is going to get more and more scarce as you go, but it's not going to happen overnight, right? The wine needs to age. You just got to leave it alone and be patient. 
So when it comes to deciding what wines to invest in, I think you mentioned there is a VinoVest algorithm that can help you decide. But first, I guess, figuring out how do you even define what makes an investable wine? I would say three main definitions. Number one is scarcity, right? It can't be commercially produced. It's something that's not readily available on, you know, every time you go to Trader Joe's. No offense to Trader Joe's wines. They're nice. They're just not investable. And I think number two is that they have a track record of improving with age, right? So ones that can age more than just the first two, three years, which is, I think, most commercial wines that are produced out there. And I think number three is that brand equity. It needs to be something that is sought after, that people do recognize globally. And I think once you have those three characteristics, you're starting to look at the investable wine category. And so... For the wines under management for VinoVest, we talked about Bordeaux maybe being a big part. What is that regional mix of that portfolio? A lot of Bordeaux, I would say you know, maybe 25 to 35% Bordeaux. Burgundy is definitely number two, closely followed by Italy. Uh, we've seen huge price increase in the past two, three years for a lot of the super Tuscan producers, a lot of the Barolo producers, especially given that tariff that was put in for a couple of years before it was lifted that had that 25% tariff on all, all French wines, minus Champagne, most European wines actually, minus Italy. So that really helped the regions of Italy and Champagne. So those are our two next biggest allocations. And then we've got very small allocations of select producers in California, um, in Chile, Germany, and you know just kind of cherry picking for the, from the rest of the world. So you said Bordeaux is only 25%? I would say 25 to 35 Okay. I'm surprised it's not even bigger. Yeah. A lot of people are just like go all in Bordeaux, but when you're looking at the returns, I mean, it's, it's already a very commercial market unless you're buying on Premier. I mean, even sometimes, even when you're buying on Premier, Bordeaux is that sort of like blue chip stable portfolio asset that you want in there. But if you want the crazy returns, Burgundy, Champagne, as well as Italy are going to get you those, those outperformance of the market. I'm curious with your algorithm, have you back tested it to see how it would have done against like uh, major price increases that you they saw in like Bordeaux in 2009, 2010 to figure out if if you were to go back and look at your data from then, would you actually have recommended to your investors to buy 2009, 2010 Bordeaux, which w- w- in hindsight to many people's are overinflated prices. I mean, fabulous wines, but ridiculously priced wines. Yeah, we've done extensive back testing, not only in just in the past, you know, past two decades, but all the way back into the 80s. So we've been able to really hone in our strategy. And you're right, like back then, like Bordeaux was pretty much king. I would say people were investing in maybe 60, 70% Bordeaux. And now I think as the world has kind of realized that, hey, that's not the only great investable region, so has our strategy. And that's why our mix, I think, is maybe a little bit more diversified than most people would expect. So you mentioned Italy is one of the regions that sort of been improving or increasing in investment over time. Have you seen other spots around the world or even specific producers that are joining this quote unquote investment class of wines? I think a lot of times outside of Italy, it's not really new producers, but it may be regions that may be having a resurgence. So for example, vintage champagne, right? Right now, stuff that's coming from the years like 2002, 1996, like they're exploding in price. A lot of them have had triple digit gains from the start of 2021 to when we're recording now, which is the end of September. You know, a lot of these champagne houses, you know, they've been 
doing this for hundreds of years, but now they're kind of starting to see those shifts in uh, maybe consumer preferences that are leading to their wines really starting to fly off the shelves. I am curious on how you deal with fake wines or counterfeit wines. We had Maureen Downey on episode 33 of X Chateau, where she talked about how important provenance of wines is, especially for some of these high-end collections or collectors who never actually have the bottles in hand, right? They're essentially selling them to each other, but no one's ever in possession of the bottle. It's just a movement of an asset. And how does one then go through and verify? And and then you also mentioned you're covering a wide swath of vintages. So how does VinoVest protect to make sure that the product is of the right provenance? I think provenance and fraud are one of the biggest risks in the industry for newcomers because they have no idea what to look for on the labels, what to look for on you know different parts of the bottle to know if it's real or not. And to your point, they're not really seeing it, right? Because it's stored probably in a different country for the most part. Thankfully, we do have really great insurance that can help us be able to inspect not only the condition of wines that arrive, but also be able to authenticate. They're the ones that are covering us. So they're extra motivated to make sure that their coverage matches the value of the wine. And if it is fake, that value is zero, right? They don't need to be spending extra money to cover that, that market value. Oh, so your insurance not only covers damage or improper storage, it it covers uh, natural disaster and fraud as well. Yeah, so that's why they're going in there. The folks that we work with at the warehouses have inspection checks. They know that you know some bottles you can see the serial number number under UV light. Some bottles, you know, maybe the font may not be looking uh, the right size or the right thickness. Right, things are that. Frankly, I don't know, but. We are very, very lucky to work with people that are experts that do know and can be able to have those telltale signs, especially on the ones that are at the most highest level of risk, right? A lot of the Burgundies and Bordeaux and you know, now more and more, a lot of the Super Tuscans as well. And do you help minimize some of that by going direct from either a Bordeaux negotiant or ex-seller, ex-domain from a, from, a, from a place in Burgundy? Yeah, that's another thing. It's like we only buy in bond as well, which means that you're able to track and see who the previous owners are and track it all the way back to the winery. We very rarely buy from third-party collectors, private collectors, unless they've stored their wine in the same warehouse as us. So there's very little risk when we're buying because we exclude a lot of the people that we could be buying from. And you mentioned your insurance company, they actually do inspections of the wines? So our insurance company works with our warehouse and they perform inspections on all the cases, making sure that they are A, in good condition and B, are authentic. So when you look at the wine investment market in general, maybe not the collectors who are drinking it, but more along the lines of what you're doing and thinking of it as an asset class and an investment, who do you see as the key players in this space? I think when you're looking at wine investment funds, they're really largely centered in Asia and Europe. I think from a cultural relevance standpoint, wine is just a bigger part of people's lives over there, right? In in the US, we're still all about beers and seltzer for the most part, maybe now more and more fine whiskey, I would say. But the big players, I think a lot of the private banks have alternative asset funds, wine funds. And then there's several wine investment companies in the UK. So whether it be like smaller shops like VinX or WineX, and then there's larger ones like Cult Wines. You know, they're all parts part of the industry there, and they've been pretty established given that the um, 
I think the wine investment landscape is a little bit more well-known over there. And so how does VinoVest differentiate from those other guys? I think the main thing is we're technology-driven. We started by seeing a huge gap in the quality of data in the secondary wine market, and that's where we started. We believe that even if you have the best strategy in the world, if you have incomplete data, you can't really be able to execute that strategy. So that's why we take a really wide approach when we're collecting that data, when we're aggregating it and then cleaning it. And then we have an automated strategy that helps us be able to make decisions that we believe will be able to achieve the best returns over time. So I think those two components, as well as ease of use, are really what separates VinoVest from everybody else. So there's been the occasional news flash of some wine investment funds in the past that haven't made it. I think some that I've heard of are like Mayfair Sellers and Uvine Cellaret. And the investors were left holding the bag in those cases. How do you address those concerns for your customers? I think the main thing is having that sort of audit trail. We want to make sure that every customer owns their wine, which they do. Every customer has that sort of safety to know that, hey, I can actually go call the warehouse today, give the warehouse my serial number, and they'll be able to tell me which wines are under that serial number and have that all third-party verified. That's a big reason why we work with established third parties in the space to handle our logistics, our fraud detection, our insurance, because we don't want everything under one house, right? We want third-party audits. We want those checks and balances, especially in an industry that has very little regulation. So I think it's really up on us to be able to bring a little bit more regulation to ourselves before it comes globally, because we want that same level of trust that customers have when they're putting their money into anything else. Got it. So I'm curious on wine investments impact on the wine industry in general. If it's successful, do you think that the impact on pricing will be felt by the average consumer in the wine industry? So are, are basically some of these wines that are already becoming unattainable, are they becoming more unattainable because bigger players are pooling their money together are going to make it harder and harder for people to get into that space? What are your thoughts on that? I think prices will go up through more players entering the market. I think also through climate change as well. These yields, they're already been decreasing for the last decade or so, and they're just producing less and less wine. And for them to even be able to be economically viable, they're releasing at higher prices. So I think there's a combination of a lot of macro and micro factors that are going to lead to more expensive wines getting more expensive. And I think, though, on the sort of like average consumption wines, you know, stuff between 10 and 20 bucks because there is a lot of commercialization and because they could probably source their bulk grapes from anywhere. I think those prices will probably still remain relatively stable, but I think the high end of the wine or the mid to high end of the wine is going to um, increase in the next, you know, probably forever. It's been, they've been steadily increasing for many decades. Right. So you're exclusively dealing in fine wine or luxury wine. So do you think there's a limit to how high fine wine or luxury wine can get priced? Is there a cap or do you, do you see it just on a, being on a tear and continue to going in perpetuity? I think every single time I think there's a cap, I'm proven wrong, right? You're, every single week you're hearing about a crazy auction where it's like, how much did that person pay for this wine? So I'm not going to make any predictions on what the future could look like, but I can definitely see those prices continuing to rise, especially as 
there's just more and more wealth happening in the world. And there's very little things that wealth can't buy. And a lot of times it's things that are very rare and scarce and won't ever be reproduced like, like these vintage wines. So you mentioned auction houses and the, they have historically played a pretty key role in buying and selling fine wine collections. How, how do investment funds amplify or compete with this market? I think we're amplifying the volume and demand. They are an avenue, I think, for a lot of people to be able to buy and sell their wines from. But I think the modern investor is not going to be okay with like a 20% cut, right? That's, that's kind of insane when you think about investments. So low-cost solutions to be able to buy and sell your wine. 25% in some cases, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's insane, right? It's like I, I could buy way more bottles for that price if I didn't go to an auction. I mean, to be fair, the, the auctions have moved the premiums from the seller side all to the buyer side before they were taking a larger chunk out of the, out of the sellers, but uh, sellers don't want that either, right? Yeah, it's, it's still a lot to whoever's bearing the bag, but you know, it, it doesn't need to be expensive, right? Now, a lot of them are happening online. The costs are dramatically decreased. There can be, I think, more user-friendly options out there. I think an interesting question for any kind of alternate investment class is how is it regulated? Obviously, we've seen in the last year or two a huge rise in NFTs and things like that. But but wine, something that people have invested in for years, how are these regulated? Is this something that is controlled by the SEC, or that they are going to at some point you get big enough that they're going to they're going to put an eye towards? Like what's the, what's regulation look like for Vinovest? In the United States, wine is considered a collectible, not a security, so it's regulated the same way that you would regulate art. Uh, rare coins and other things like that. So that I believe is like a tax of high 20% and then could be higher or lower depending on your income status. And then internationally, it has in some countries really favorable tax treatment. So for example, in the UK and France and a lot of parts of Asia, it actually is considered a wasting asset. This means that it has an an expiration date and because of that, it is capital gains tax free, which is pretty awesome. It's interesting. So, is the expiration date like James Suckling's, like uh, last year of his uh, of his good good until or good value rating? <laughs> yeah, it's it's fifty years in most in most countries. So that's really past most wines expiration dates. So, does Vinovest report any gains from sales on a ten ninety nine, or how do they or how do capital gains work for Vinovest itself? So capital gains are reported, going to be self-reported because it's a collectible. And then if it's above certain thresholds, we will issue additional forms when they're required. What's coming up next for VinoVest? I think for us, we're still at such the early innings, right? Most people don't even know that wine investing is a thing that you can do, much less how attractive it can be. So we really want to continue to educate and we want to continue to make the barriers really low so that anybody who might be considering it, you know, maybe they think they don't have enough time or don't have enough knowledge, they can still be able to have a low-cost entry point to just try it out, see if it's for them, and learn more about the world of wine through that. I have to say, you guys could give a masterclass to most of the wine industry on uh, social media advertising and making compelling uh, you know, videos to get people to entice them to, to click into, uh, look at your website. Uh, you, I've been targeted multiple times, and it's, uh, you guys do a really good job in that regard. There we go. I'll pass that on to the team because we knew we knew you were coming onto the pod. You probably clicked around, so we're we're getting you. So 
my search criteria, you're capturing all, all the cookies everywhere. So wrapping up, what are you most excited for in the wine industry in the coming year or so? I'm really excited for more of the sort of on offline or maybe closed door or maybe very sort of relationship to driven transactions to become more transparent, to be more accessible, to be more online and traceable. I think better transparency enables more consumer trust, enables more market participation. And I think that by doing that, it helps both the producers and the end users. And that's really what I'm excited for. And I think Vinovest can play a large role in that. Awesome. Well, Anthony, we want to thank you for your time. I mean, we learned so much about Vinovest and wine as an investment grade asset in general. So thank you for your time and being so transparent with all your knowledge. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on and hope we can do this again very soon. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Oh.